welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I'm so glad you could join me. Today, we'll be exploring Ohio legends about strange happenings in two small cemeteries outside the village of McClure, Ohio. For over a hundred years, local residents have retold stories of the young, and in some cases, infantile ghosts that haunt these locations. When it comes to ghosts, there's nothing more cliche than a haunting in a cemetery. We assume that restless spirits hover by their graves, bemoaning their deaths, suspended between this world and the next. We assume reasons for these spirits' restlessness. We stitch together stories that provide tidy explanations of their discontent. We imagine their anguish over issues beyond their control and their futile attempts to right wrongs from behind the veil. These two stories fit this description nicely. They just so happen to spring forth from the same rural Northwest Ohio soil. Carrie's grave is located in Olive Branch Cemetery, situated about two miles west of the village of McClure, Ohio. Ghost hunters of all persuasions are known to travel considerable distances to catch a glimpse of Carrie hovering over her fenced-in grave, warding off vandals who could disgrace her final resting place. At least that's one side of the story. The folklore itself is often presented in two versions, usually one told right after the other, so the listener can decide which tale to believe. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-story version of local folklore. So in much the same way as the locals, I'll pass along the legend to you. The first story centers on our protagonist, Carrie, a young woman from times gone by who was mercilessly teased and bullied by her peers. Her parents loved her dearly and made every effort to protect her in life, but were ultimately powerless to intervene. Carrie died from the effects of her mistreatment, some say of the broken spiritedness that so often results from such trauma. Her parents would bury her in a peaceful, rural cemetery two miles beyond the outskirts of town, where presumably her tormentors would no longer hurt her. Sadly, just as in life, these efforts weren't enough to protect her. The hateful bullies traveled in packs out to the cemetery to desecrate her tombstone, eventually breaking it in half. No attempt at repairing the site would last, as the bullies' efforts were tireless. Finally, Her parents invested in a wrought iron fence enclosing the gravesite and a final measure to ensure their daughter's soul could rest at peace. Only then did the vandalism stop. Her parents would make their final resting place next to her, there within the fence-off plot. Today, Carrie's grave is the only grave in the cemetery which remains fenced in by that same black wrought iron fence, proof of the story. Late at night, her slender figure glows bright, hovering above her final resting place, watching for the return of her tormentors. Sometimes at night, you can hear her shriek. She longs for retribution from the grave. The second story, again usually presented alongside the first, portrays Carrie's mother as the protagonist. The tale goes that infant Carrie was the victim of an undefined plague from more than a century ago. Her mother, distraught and hysterical, would lose her sanity. The local physician would advise a stay in the asylum, but the mother refused. She marched to Carrie's grave with only a shovel in hand and exhumed her baby's remains. 
covered in sweat and dirt, she sat prostrate over Carrie's corpse. She cradled it in her lap while singing sweetly. She'd been reunited with her once more. When the family realized what had happened, they were appalled and overwhelmed with what to do. After reinterring Carrie's remains, they paid for a fence to be constructed around the gravesite to help ensure that the mother wouldn't make a second attempt. It was only after the mother's death, many years later, that she would be reunited with Carrie once more. Both Carrie's parents would be buried within the fenced-off portion. The glowing figure often spotted hovering above the grave is that of Carrie's mother. The shrieking heard at night is her desperate cry to hold her baby one last time. Which story do you choose? The crazed and grief-stricken mother, obsessed with being reunited with her dead baby, or the tormented and abused young woman, left only by her parents? There's something about the vulnerability of both characters that draws us in, and speaks to our deep need for attachment and acceptance. That's what makes a legend stick. We see something of ourselves within it. Hey guys, today we're at the Carey's Grave in McClure, Ohio. We're gonna be at Olive Cemetery and we're gonna be looking for some apparitions. I'm going to check some things out, see what this legend's all about. We just reached our destination here in uh, McClure, Ohio, Carrie's Grave, Olive Cemetery. Uh, we about to get out and go look for some aberrations. Let's do it. Take some readings <laughs> inside the inside the uh, fence. That seems a little spooky. <laughs> Get inside Not the fence. Yet. Get inside the fence. All right. Is there any apparitions here? Are there any apparitions in the area? Can I speak to a Carrie? Can I speak to a Carrie's mother? If you are here, please show yourself. An internet search of Carrie's grave in McClure, Ohio, brings forth a wealth of information on the legend. Much of it centers on the paranormal claims, as the clip you just heard from a YouTube video of a group of ghost-hunting teenagers. These young men wanted to encounter the lonely spirit, and they tried repeatedly to summon her. There's nothing new about a group of kids looking for ghosts in the cemetery. In fact, some people might consider a midnight trip a rite of passage. But these kids are serious. They hold EVP sessions, take readings of electromagnetic fields, and watch as the temperature falls. While holding his phone, one of them reads aloud the tale of Carrie's torment at the hands of her peers. On seeing that the tombstones have been removed from within the fence, another young man jokes that they must have been stolen by the kids from Tenora, a rival high school, and the others chuckle at this. It's just my own speculation, but I wonder if Carrie's youth 
and her classic teenage struggles hold any special appeal for the group. Sometimes what we search for in folk legends can be a bit of a Rorschach test of our own passions and fears. Anyway, they catch a few strange noises and orbs or what look to be bugs flying around in front of the camera. And after several more minutes, the boys retreat, leaving Carrie and her mother to themselves. So just what is the story behind this unusual grave? My visit one morning in mid-March helped me get a feel for the place. Truth be told, cemeteries have long had a certain draw for me. It's something in the stillness, in the personal histories each tombstone represents. It's hard to replicate that feeling elsewhere. Anyway, I'd done some research on the Olive Branch Cemetery before heading there. Property records show that the land was first designated as a cemetery around 1863, in the heat of the Civil War. That explains the numerous five-pointed stars one sees on walking through the plots, indicating veterans of the conflict. Sometime around 1874, the land was purchased by the Olive Branch Church, which provides the name that remains today. A search of burial records shows a total of 509 registered plots within the grounds. Of all these dearly departed souls, only four are named Carrie. One is a 92-year-old woman, the second is a 90-year-old woman, the third is a 42-year-old woman, and the fourth is one Carrie Hollopeter. In 1889, she died at the age of 21, and her parents, David and Adeline, are buried next to her. Her death certificate lists consumption as the cause of death. This white plague would later become known as tuberculosis, an infectious and highly contagious lung disease that would claim the lives of millions across the world. In more recent times, the CDC would claim that in 2017, about 1.3 million people around the world succumbed to the disease. That's an enormous number, but in today's world of 7.5 billion people, the percentage is considerably less than what existed in Carrie's time. In the U.S. in the late 1800s, consumption would take the lives of one in seven of all people living. The rectangular plot enclosed by the wrought iron fence is about 8 by 12 feet. One section of fence leans heavily on a flagpole, and the other section looks as though it's been pried from the ground. It's angled outward, allowing for easy entry into the space. The fence itself is about 2 feet high and adorned with flourishes that slightly resemble a fleur-de-lis with the points turned downward. Pictures of the plot from previous decades show multiple tombstones once stood within the space. Now, only a couple decorative wrought iron stakes remain there. The hollow Peter family tombstone can be found only a few paces away from the fenced-in plot. It contains the birth and death dates for Carrie, her mother, and father. Although it's marked with Carrie's death date of 1889, it clearly was made in more recent times. It's a long and flat, rectangular, polished stone with engravings that are clear and well-defined, nothing like the other tombstones of the late 1800s. The style and design is clearly mid-20th century or newer. Could this be a replacement headstone for the originals that once stood within the fenced-in plot? Did moving the stone a few paces away help ensure that vandals wouldn't find it? One can only guess. In any case, Carrie Hollopeter is the only Carrie buried in Olive Branch Cemetery who died as a young woman. 
and she is buried with her parents, as both legends claim. I decided to see what more I could learn about Carrie and her family. Unfortunately, in those days, women rarely received an obituary printed in the newspaper. On a few occasions, a blurb just a few lines long might mention the death of a woman and the funeral arrangements. My efforts at finding any such notice on Carrie were fruitless. Luckily, I was able to find rich information about the family from her father's obituary. David Hallopeter would die of heart disease nine years after Carrie. He was a Civil War veteran who fought in Company K, 101st Regiment of the Ohio Volunteer Infantry, under General Sherman. Walking through the cemetery, one can find several grave sites adorned with decorative five-pointed stars on spikes. One such star indicates David as a veteran. His obituary from the May 25, 1899 issue of the Democratic Northwest goes on to explain that he had served 17 years as a quartermaster of the local GAR post. GAR stands for the Grand Army of the Republic, which was a fraternal organization of Union veterans of the Civil War. These men would become the first organized advocacy group in American politics. The GAR would promote many causes, including voting rights for black veterans, and remarkably, they would push to establish Memorial Day as a national holiday, one intended to honor our cherished dead by decorating their grave sites in memoriam. How bitterly ironic to think that David's original grave, and that of his daughter and wife, may have been repeatedly desecrated over the years. One line of David's obituary is devoted to Carrie. It reads, Nine years ago, their eldest daughter, Carrie, bade farewell to earth. Clearly, the couple grieved the loss of their daughter for the rest of their days. Carrie's mother would die in 1914. There are other lines from the obituary which stand out in terms of the intimacy they portray. Quote, The past winter has been to him a time of severe affliction. When he realized that his days were almost numbered, he willingly made arrangements to that effect and expressed his readiness to die. And before the dawn of May 18, 1899, he opened his eyes upon the eternal world. Here remains his devoted wife, two sons, two daughters, one grandchild, three brothers and four sisters, and many comrades and friends to mourn his departure. Bravely thou despite, securely may thou rest. Knowing about Carrie's father helps provide context, but we'll never know the same level of detail about Carrie herself. She succumbed to tuberculosis at the age of 21, as did so many others. A quick review of death records from that time shows a significant percentage of victims of the disease from all ages. Did Carrie suffer a slow, declining waste over a period of years? This common course of the illness is what led to the name consumption, indicating the disease's slow process of eventually consuming a person's body. Perhaps she died more suddenly following the onset. This second, less common course for the disease was said to be preferred as it spared the victim an agonizing deterioration. Of course, we'll never know the details about her death and, more importantly, her life. We're left with folk tales of Carrie and her parents as troubled spirits, doomed to watch over the grave for eternity. That leaves us to our final question about Carrie's grave. 
the wrought iron fence, which seems to have sparked the ghostly tales that linger for local residents. Of all 509 plots within the cemetery, only this site is fenced. The fence is ornate and beautiful in that old-fashioned way, but in terms of its purpose as a fence, it's unimposing. At two feet tall, no crazed and grief-stricken mother nor riotous teenagers would think twice about stepping over it. So why is it there? As it turns out, short wrought iron fences around grave sites were not uncommon in the South in the late 1800s and early 1900s. However, they're not usually seen as far north as Ohio. The fence often served dual purposes. One was to more easily define a family plot or even a single grave. It was a way to show even greater respect for the lost loved ones. The other more functional purpose was to keep wild animals such as deer and other vermin away from the grave. In any case, a family who went through the time and expense of constructing such fences took special reverence in maintaining the gravesite as a tribute to their dearly departed. Sadly, in our times, such an odd structure among other graves now calls special attention. Our minds work to explain it, to conjure up a context for its being there. It draws forth stories based on our deepest fears. Having finished my visit at Carrie's gravesite, I made my way back to the car. The ground crunched beneath my feet. The temperature had dropped just below freezing after the previous day's heavy rain, turning mud puddles into slats of ice. It was one of those March mornings when you could feel the turning of the season. Despite the cold, I could feel the warmth of the sun on my face. I could hear the chattering of small songbirds in the bushes that ran along the rear of the cemetery. I stopped for a moment to take it all in before leaving. It was time to visit McClure's next haunted cemetery. At about two and a half miles distance, I was there in minutes. From the road, Crybaby Hill doesn't even look like a cemetery. It looks like an elevated piece of land, which I guess is how you would define a hill. It's surrounded by fields, deadened corn stalks laying all around it, from where they'd been harvested last fall. A small dirt road with two tire tracks ran half a mile or more to the entrance of the hill. The sharp incline only started when you were right up on it. The half-acre parcel of land is only elevated about four or five feet, but it's clearly distinguished from the rest of the landscape. The lack of any trees or other structures makes it quite windy. Getting out of the car, I climbed to the top and shoved my hands in my coat pockets. Maybe spring hadn't arrived yet at all. Most of the tombstones which remain in the cemetery are flat and flush with the ground, which is partially the reason why the place doesn't look like a cemetery from the road. A handful of tombstones stand as monuments, some of which could still be read with ease. Most of the ground there is unremarkable, flat and covered in grass. There is no fence around the property, no sign indicating where you are. Without the aid of GPS, I doubted I would have ever found the place. The legend of Crybaby Hill has been known to locals for generations. The most common claim is that if you hold still and listen, you'll start to hear faint cries of infants in the distance. You might first question if you're simply hearing things, maybe the whistling of the wind, but in a few moments the sound grows. Then it takes on that instinctual rhythm, the brief pause as the baby catches her breath, followed by the rising wail. The sound grows as the time passes until, 
if you can stomach it. You're convinced a baby is there on the patch of grass next to you, pleading in distress. But all you can see are fields of grain dotted with farmhouses for miles around. After I took some pictures of the tombstones, I was ready to head back to the car. The wind had picked up considerably and I'd started to shiver. Once again, I stopped before opening the door and stood to listen. My thoughts lingered on the stories I'd heard. I made myself as still as I could with the wind whipping my hair. I heard something. What is that? This is ridiculous. I can't possibly be hearing. Crows. A gaggle of them must have lighted in the wooded area a couple fields over. The wind carried their calls to my ears. I took in a deep breath and surveyed the cemetery once more before hopping into the car. There was something out of place about this location. It created, for me at least, this feeling of exposure. Maybe it was the elevation that made me feel as though I was put on some kind of pedestal. Only no one was there to see me but the crows, I think. The term crybaby is an overused trope in folk legends around the country. It most often refers to bridges, for whatever reason. Ohio, for example, has several crybaby bridges. Usually the folktale behind these places suggests that a mother has gone insane and taken her baby to the bridge, and she jumps off, killing herself and the baby in the process. If you stop your car on the bridge, say at 3 a.m., and honk your horn three times, you'll hear the baby's final cries. The specific version isn't usually too far off from the storyline. Surprisingly, the small cemetery outside McClure doesn't follow these same claims. The legend is short on detail, and plot for that matter. Simply put, the claim is that a bunch of babies were once brought to this hill, slaughtered, and buried there. No explanation for such a heinous event is offered. The teller usually simply advises you to go and hear for yourself. To my knowledge, there are no historical accounts of a mass murder of infants in the area. It's pretty hard to believe that such an atrocity could have happened without a public uproar which would have followed. In order to learn more about the truth of this place, I'd have to do more digging. Crybaby Hill is the colloquial name given the place by locals over the years. Its proper name is the Harris Jones Cemetery. The Henry County Recorder's Office has it officially listed as a cemetery among many others that dot the fields throughout the county. The original large plot of 80 acres was first sold to a John W. Clark in 1837, only about 34 years after Ohio statehood. That section of land would be bought and sold again seven times before coming into the possession of one James W. Harris. He would purchase a section of 55 acres from the original 80 in 1873. Genealogical records reflect that he was born in New York State in December 1825. Harris would first work as a farm laborer near present-day Tiffin, Ohio, before eventually saving enough money to buy the 55-acre plot in Henry County in 1873. At nearly 50 years old, a Civil War veteran of the Union Army, Harris would eventually designate one half acre of his farm as a cemetery. 
A review of burial records shows only 10 plots that are officially recorded within the grounds there. However, an inspection of the remaining stones reveals partial names which are not included on the official registry. Suffice it to say, the true number of burials there is unknown. The records show the youngest person was 35 years old. No infants are registered. James W. Harris would maintain the farm and the cemetery until the sale of the half-acre plot was made to a William Wesley Jones in 1881. A special notation in the property records from that time shows that the transfer was made for $1 to both Jones and the trustees of the Harris Cemetery, from then on known as the Harris-Jones Cemetery. The deed reads that the transfer of the half acre of land was deemed as a burial ground and, quote, fenced and located. This shows that James Harris had created a proper cemetery, complete with a fence and signage. In transferring ownership to Jones, he had specified that the land would remain a cemetery. One connection between the folk legends of Carey's grave and Crybaby Hill includes an emphasis on Union Army veterans. William Wesley Jones was born in Licking County, Ohio, but would later move to Henry County. He, too, would work as a farm laborer before presumably raising the funds to own his own farm, seeking a plot of land in the rich, black swamp soil, as so many others had before him. At age 50, he would accept ownership of the small cemetery. One veteran, James Harris, was passing down the care of the cemetery to another veteran. William Wesley Jones's grave is easily found there on Crybaby Hill. It's at the northwest corner of the cemetery. His stone is the most easily read of the lot. It looks as though it's been re-engraved, highlighting his service in the Union Army, reaching the rank of sergeant for Company D, 183rd Ohio Infantry. The same five-pointed star adorns his gravesite, as does that of David Hollowpeter, the cause of death listed on Jones's death certificate is consumption, the same forgotten plague that had claimed the life of Carrie Hallopeter. Jones survived the war, the risk of dying from infectious disease caught in camps and on the battlefields, only to succumb to the mysterious epidemic ravaging the country in the late 1800s. He would die in 1898 and be interred in the cemetery he had been steward of for the past 17 years. The deed to the Harris-Jones Cemetery would be transferred many times over until most recently in 2014, when property records would list a private citizen, Mr. Richard Bennett, as current owner. The odd appearance of a fence at Carey's grave in Olive Branch Cemetery triggered folktales that have stood for generations. Remarkably, the absence of a fence at the Harris-Jones Cemetery adds to its unnatural exposure, to a sense of vulnerability one feels on being there. In my historical research, both locations reveal the real human need to honor our dead, to consecrate the space where their remains lie. Perhaps it's our fear of our own death that conjures spirits, allowing a glimpse of what's behind the veil. Perhaps you'd rather see a glowing apparition or hear unearthly cries than consider the nothingness that a final death suggests. This completes our episode on the ghosts of McClure. 
thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed hearing these folk tales. You can find Ohio Folklore on Facebook. And if you have a legend you'd like to have featured in a future episode, please let me know. <laughs>